0: Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. My uh, guest today, I'm speaking with Simone Senegals, who is with the Indigenous Environmental Network in Bemidji, Minnesota. Um, And we're speaking today about uh, food sovereignty, and particularly um, with respect to Indigenous peoples and respect to... um, the Ojibwe people in Minnesota and, and, and that region. So welcome, Simone. Thank you. Um, could you maybe just start by uh, helping the listeners understand uh, what the term food sovereignty really implies?
1: Um, yeah, so uh, sovereignty is a very important word for indigenous peoples and it carries a lot of weight. Um, it's a very complex thing Um, And people interpret it differently, certainly, Um, but the way that I and the way that um, the Indigenous Environmental Network sort of look at food sovereignty um, is based upon um, the food sovereignty movement itself. And so um, La Via Campesina um, and their definition of food sovereignty, which talks strongly about that the food system or food systems are in the, under the control of people um, and not corporations. Um, and that one of the best examples I've ever heard is, so food security means that everybody has enough to eat, um, but food sovereignty means that people are in control of the whole food system. So we know where our food comes from, you know, workers are empowered, animals are um, taken care of, the land is taken care of, soil is um, taken care of, and it's like a more of a network of relationships. Um, and it's not just something that happens to us, but it's something that we are, that we engage in with a recognition of our part in it as a whole. I don't know how to, if that's a good way to describe it or not, but...
0: It it makes sense. And of course, for um, indigenous nations within, you know, colonizing uh, states, such as the United States, um, the whole issue of sovereignty is of, you know, extra importance um, beyond beyond what maybe the average, you know, urbanite in in the United States who, who might be listening to this conversation later would think about in terms of control of her, you know, her access to healthy food or, or um, you know, possibly his, his ability to choose a diet and that sort of thing. There's, there's like an extra level of, of significance to that. Um, maybe yeah. there's something, I, I don't think that the average person listening to this is gonna be really up, up to speed on, the, on these topics necessarily. So sure. um, there might be some more you could, you could explain on that.
1: Yeah, and maybe it will come out in our conversations. It's sort of hard to just kind of throw out an explanation because I feel like it's such a complex thing and sovereignty for, in, in my opinion, and every Native you talk to may have a you know a different view. I can only speak for myself. But um, it, so for me, food sovereignty, when I got into this work, it was very closely tied into... Um, the well-being of indigenous peoples and the reclamation of those ways of being that um, made us healthy and strong, and not just in terms of our physical health, like our diet, what we eat, but food sovereignty means that we have a network of healthy relationships. Um, so for example, this is a really good example for me to help, for me, it helps me to think about what I think food sovereignty is. And so. Um, if I go into the grocery store and I go and buy some white rice, um, you know, I'm, I'm in a climate controlled space. Um, I know that it's going to be, I can go there at two in the morning. I can go in there in December. I can go there in February. It doesn't matter. Um, that food will be there on in shelf, you know, on the bottom shelf of aisle 11. Um, I don't have to do any work in order to get there. I don't have to think about um, who harvested that, where it came from, what the effect on the land was, um, what kind of um, chemicals were used, those things I can think about cerebrally. Um, I can sort of think about them, but when I go out to harvest my traditional wild rice, um, it's an entirely different situation. Um, I One, it's very seasonal, so I have to be aware of the season. I have to be aware of when the rice is uh ripe. Um, I have to be aware of um, the weather. I have to have a relationship with other people who are using the rice bed. Maybe their family have been using it for generations so I don't just jump in there and go grab it. Um, I have to have um, a relationship with my community. I have to have a relationship with someone who, have, who would have taught me how to rice. Um, you have to have a partner when you rice. Um, I'm out there in nature. There are bugs on me. (laughs) And so it's, it's an entirely different situation. I have to be physically able. Um, and so my relationship with that food source is very intimate. Um, and it, and it requires that I acknowledge myself as part of a whole and that I behave accordingly. And so that you know, and so when we, so when if you bring in food sovereignty, so our relationship with food is different. Our control over it is different. It's not something that's just processed 1,500 miles away and slapped into a grocery store for us. And so sovereignty really, I have really have a hard time distinguishing between food sovereignty and just general sovereignty for indigenous folks, because food sovereignty also has so much to do with um, our relationship with land and water which um, is sort of a product of our oppression at the hands of um, sort of colonial powers because it's our land and water that was wanted and taken. And so when we don't have um, access to that in a very meaningful way, when we don't have control over access to our own homelands um, and our own relationship with, I mean, we're indigenous, what does that mean, right? It means in, in relation to a place and so, all of those things come together when I think about sovereignty um, so it's not just control over policy when I say control over our food systems you know it's it's, it's about having um, i don't know and it it's all it's, it's tied in with historical trauma it's all of those things you know once I had to do a, once I had to do a presentation about um, farm to school um, and how we were starting to bring in healthy foods for um, for kids in schools and for some of our reservation schools, and I had to do this presentation in front of all these people, and um, I started to cry because I was thinking about my own grandmother who had been in boarding school for her, you know, in all, all her entire childhood, um, and how um, giving good food is an act of love, and giving cultural food is something that, so when kids were putting board in boarding school, I mean, you know, one of the bad things that happened to them, amongst many terrible things, was, you know, that their food was taken away, their good nutritional food, their, um, their relationship with that food, which was all tied into ceremony, self-worth, role in the, the environment, role in the community, all of those things. And so, when we are restoring good food, especially traditional food to indigenous kids in schools, it's a very important thing. It's not just about their nutritional well being, but it's like looking at that whole history of what has happened to us. Um, and food is just one of those things that we can start to restore to heal ourselves.
0: That's true. Really, to me, that's, that's, that's full, you know, in, in a beautiful way. It's, it's a really full picture. And, and it expresses my sense of, of what this regenerative movement is, is becoming in that from a simple act of, of um, reclaiming a connection and a sense of responsibility and therefore um, a need to take care of and uh, in that sense control, but more in the sense of caring than in domination.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Right? That From that flows all of these other forms of nourishment, the the, the ability to bring back culture into some some healthier condition and and to reconnect pieces which have been alienated, Um, to reconnect the, the alienated aspects of the individual, of ourselves, with that really, really fundamental and essential process of bringing food forth from the earth. it's it's just it's a beautifully whole um, image that that you've laid out there
1: yeah this is a conversation that could go on for years right i mean it's it's deep stuff and it's and it's it's a continuum so it's not just nowadays it's it's a historical thing but it's not just in the past it's it's past present future all connected and our role and our place in there and so when we look at food sovereignty or when we look at sovereignty you have to look at it in terms of that continuum not just in terms of time but again those those complex relationships um, and our responsibilities and and all of those things and and ceremonies and and language and all of those things come into play
0: and so much about relationship
1: relationship is the key honestly it Mm -hmm. really is
0: so you know this this strikes me as as a kind of department of new terminology for continual thinking um in in that food sovereignty and food security you know these are these are expressions which have surfaced in the, the last decade or so but mm-hmm. that's not to say that the the thinking that is part of that is new and it's not to say that the practices are necessarily new but it's in no. some way some way being relabeled, maybe in, in, in an attempt to get other people to understand it uh, more more readily, or to raise it to a level of significance.
1: Yeah, it's it's really it's definitely a reclamation, and and I mean I think that's one of the things that a lot of native folks find sort of um, humorous and yet terribly frustrating is that um you know our way of life especially traditionally or historically or sort of um pre interference <laughs> um was really full and really vibrant and really um just so beautiful and so st- and and created such strong communities and it, it, you know we were able to be here um for you know millennia and and not and not destroy everything um and so it's funny when all these new terms come up, you know, and agroecology, which I love, and, and all of those good s- terms, but it's like, we're like, um, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> duh. I mean, I don't know how to say duh, but <laughs> it's, a, it's sort of like, it, we've been doing this. And, um, and so I think it's really funny when um, the obvious is stated with such an air of discovery.
0: <laughs> That's a great one, um,
1: yeah. <laughs> you know, like, wow, guess what, you know, and, and then, and then you've got this ancient, um, this ancient, you know, all these civilizations and all these different indigenous um, societies and civilizations and, and, and they're going, yeah, you know, been doing it. <laughs>
0: yeah. Been telling you too.
1: Yeah. And been telling you. So, but you know, but the thing is, is now we're, we're in the difficult position of having to rediscover it for ourselves. Because so much has been taken, um, and so much has been um, disrupted, and and even lost. I, I really don't like to say that because I, I hate to admit it, um, but I think a lot you know has been lost. I don't I don't think that it's lost um, irretrievably, but you know if if entire you know if millions of people are killed off, all of their knowledge is is you know I mean even within our language, one of the things. Um, one of my teachers was telling me was, it was really interesting because some of the subtleties of our language have been, um, you know, are, are more difficult to. So it let so in any language, right? There are specialties. So if you're a philosopher, you have certain language that you use um, that's very specialized for your thinking. You know, if you're a doctor, there's terminology that you use. Um, and so it, when large Portions of the population are killed off, and when um, there's forced assimilation, and when um, when education um, is so, you know, there's this whole foreign way of thinking imposed upon entire nations of people. Some of that that language is lost as well, you know. The, those those specialty words yeah. um, that that we need in order to understand certain things, you know, and sometimes even in relationship to, you know. I, I'm a beekeeper right um, and so I've been trying I keep honeybees but I've been trying to learn about native bees and there's one word in Ojibwe for bee <laughs> and I know that can't possibly be true because we have yeah. 400 species of bees in Minnesota alone and I know that my folks back in the day had to have known the name for each of those bees yeah, and why don't have we have them anymore
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly Exactly. they had to yeah. distinguish one from the other
1: yeah certainly And and I'm sure that those names also said something about that bee and how it was living or something special about it. Not just like, "oh, blue bee or something. I'm sure it was, it it spoke to who that bee was and And the relationship and the relationship, you know, and when they came out and, and so all of those things are affected by colonization and genocide and things. And so it, it, the reclamation is hard work. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah
0: so do you find that the that the uptake in terms of growing traditional food varieties or at least bringing a lot of that production back onto um territory controlled by the ojibwe nation is also moving forward those other forms of reclamation you know to maybe discovering uh, language which has not been forgotten but had not been used as a for instance or uh bringing stories back up from the elders about traditional ways of processing or harvesting or you know other ways that this is s- helping to knit back the kind of you know uh the, the raveled bits of the culture as a, as it were
1: yeah that's exactly what it is i mean just that and that's kind of what my story about the wild rice was trying to illustrate is that there you have to attend to all of those relationships um Sorry, my cat. Um, so you have to attend to all of those relationships and um, sitting around, for example, when my family sits um, around at sugar camp, which is when we do maple syrup, um, you know, we cook together. There's um, everyone from the little ones to the grandmas and grandpas. Well, really, aunties and uncles. We don't have many grandmas and grandpas left. Um, but, and so stories are told. And we're sitting next to trees where we can see the scars um, of taps that were, you know, 50 years in the past. Um, and so that connection with the land, with the trees, um, sitting close to the earth, um, sitting with your family, all of those things bring back. Um, our community, and they bring back our relationship with each other. They bring back our relationship with the earth. They bring back our relationships with the trees. We have to be aware, and we have to focus in. Whereas, and and I think that's what it is. I I don't you know I mean I, I there are stories that come out, and there are language things that come out, and there are songs, and there are teachings that come out. Um, but not always, but what always does happen is that there's that sense of community and there's that reconnection with people with the earth. That always happens just because if you're out in the world, if you're outside, you have to be aware of the earth around you. I mean, if it's, if it's muddy, <laughs> you know, if it's cold, if it's hot, all of those things force you to be in the present moment. So that and, that and that's really important. And I think that's, that's really important as we try to reclaim our culture is because for me. The center of our culture is based on values around love, respect, honesty, courage, those kind of things. Um, we have, you know, a teaching where they call them the seven grandfathers um, and those are values. And so, I think those values are at the core of all of our teachings. And so sometimes when we don't have the actual teaching, but we get the value, then that is cultural reclamation in my mind. Um, Because we might not have that exact song about um, About, you know, we might not have an exact song that goes along with collecting maple syrup, for example but when we're out there experiencing it, that comes no matter what. That is something that we do have access to just by the exercise of doing it. So you know what I'm saying? Like we do our best to get what we can and there are teachers out there everywhere for us. All we need to do is tune in. Now it might not be the exact song that my grandma knew, but I probably have the feeling that she had when she was out there working. You know what I'm saying? And that's what is important for me to reclaim. And that respect for the earth is really important.
0: And did you grow up in the community there? Or did you have a childhood somewhere else and come later?
1: Yep. So I grew up in South Minneapolis,
0: Uh um,
1: which was, you know, um, an urban spot, mainly poor white folks and natives. Um, And I'm mixed race. Um, And so... Um, I was definitely a city girl, um, but for college, I came up to Bemidji to study the language because the university or the Bemidji State University was the only one at that time that was um, offering even a minor in Ojibwe language. Um, and that's when I really started getting into more of um, you know, more of the rural. Um, teachings and being able to be outside. I mean, I learned how to wild rice as an adult, something I should have known since I was little, right? So that's an entirely different process of engagement when I'm learning things as an adult that I should have known as a kindergartner.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. In, In one way, you maybe have a greater appreciation for it because it was it was lacking and you recognize that lack. Yeah. And in other ways, I can also, I can see how It's a loss, you know, not to have have had the childhood engagements. It's,
1: yeah, it, it, it enrages me sometimes, frankly, and I think it enrages many people because it brings home, it brings home in a very personal way what was taken. You know, I mean, my grandmother was a victim of boarding schools, and I think all the time, like, why don't I have my grandmother here to teach me all these basics that I should have? known. That is my birthright that I should have had access to the entire time instead of having to go to college to learn my native language. I mean, how terrible is that, right? You know, just one generation Mm -hmm. removed. My grandmother was, um, you know, a first speaker. Um, That was her first language and her grandpa, you know, her parents um, were, you know, they knew all of the things that I only wish I could know, you know. And it's, and it's that one or two generations removed, and it, it was all taken. So it's, it's very frustrating. And so every time we do an act of healing, it's also an act of love for our ancestors, right? To acknowledge all the work that they did, um, all that they suffered, and to, um, and to acknowledge their strength for getting us to where they got us. And now it's our turn to continue to carry on.
0: We're gonna take a break now, So, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind & Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind & Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind & Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa, who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come? Find out more about Mind and Media at That's mindandmedia.com. That's M I N D A N D M E D I A.com. And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise. We're chatting with Simone Senegals from the Indigenous Environmental Network. I, I want to move just for a sec over to. Um, well, for, first off, not to take away from the f- from the significance of what you've just shared, um, uh, you know, it, it, it it's not something I'm unfamiliar with because of my 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 uh, previous work with Native community. But um, mm-hmm. I know for a lot of listeners, uh, this is significant. Um, but I do. I I would like to to now just ask you a little bit more about the Indigenous Environmental Network, Mm -hmm. Um, maybe maybe to introduce listeners to that, uh, but also to sort of sit the Native, um, well, the Indigenous food sovereignty uh, activity within a context of that organization.
1: Yep, so the Indigenous Environmental Network, we're an environmental justice organization, completely Native-led and operated um and i think that's really important to note because um it's important that um native folks speak for themselves and that there's not a middleman um as it were um and so i think that's really something special about um native-led organizations is that um we speak from experience. We don't have to read books about it. We don't have to. Um, I mean, that doesn't mean we don't read books about our own history and things like that. But I mean, it's very, it's very direct. Um, hmm, how do I say this? So I've seen lots of organizations that have um, an environmental justice department or um, program, but for us, it's we're we're immersed in it. Um, and so I think that it um, it shows through in the way that we conduct our work. And so the Food Sovereignty Program is a good example of that. So that our, our understanding about why food sovereignty is important, you know, that it's tied into our overall sovereignty, our overall well-being, our overall health, our overall emotional, mental, spiritual, physical health, um, and the health of our nations and communities and the health of the environment. All of those things are touched by food sovereignty. Um, And so we operate from that that understanding and from that strong sort of base. Um, And we've been around since 1990. um, And we started with uh, outdoor conferences called Protecting Mother Earth Conferences. And so when we started, it was pre, you know, internet (laughs) or pre wide use of the internet, you know, social media um, was not um, a tool at that, at that time. And so in order for indigenous communities that were sort of spread out and um, it was a way for us to come together and talk about what was affecting all of us. So for example, if there was um, an energy company that was doing exploring in one community for oil or gas, for example, um, and piping it through other communities and refining it in other communities, and then other communities were feeling the effects of the pollution downwind, um, all of those things, it was a chance for those communities to come together and start seeing their common um, struggle and their common strength. And so that's where IEN began as a way to bring uh, communities together to start building their own power and to start talking with one another around issues of environmental uh, injustice.
0: And, But just 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 the the the, the a, a little bit of a tangent there, you know, because you brought up this this, this topic of, of um, coming together in person versus doing the networking over social media, like it mostly happens now, and the and the power of that of that presencing, because um, it, it's it's so much deeper, and there's so much more that gets conveyed in, in it when you come together for four days or a week. And, and sit with people, and eat with people, and sweat with people, and sing with people. Mm-hmm. Um, then you know you get in there, uh, even if it's a barrage of tweets back and forth, or you know stuff pasted up on Facebook or whatever, whatever the case may be now. Um, and it, it, it kind of weaving back into into the the kind of the reclamation of foodways. Mm-hmm um I, I know some of that was already starting to happen i was aware of that back in the, the late 80s coming out of projects um in the u.s southwest where some of the I, there was a group called native seed source i think which was mm-hmm. forming up around then and there was a diabetes um reduction project trying to get people eating the traditional foods again and they of course Realized that if they wanted to get their people to eat the food again, they had to grow it, and in order to grow it, they had to actually go out there and figure out who was still growing, you know, and keeping and and you know replicating these traditional varieties. Um, so I'm curious um, in terms of what you've seen in um, sort of inter inter indigenous group or um, inter intertribal networking around, around. is that happening in in the same way that like Protect the Earth was bringing people together or is this mostly now happening more online?
1: Um, So yeah, I mean, I think online is sort of a double-edged sword. In some ways it provides a very direct platform for indigenous folks to get their own narrative out, their own stories um, directly because we haven't been well represented in other, you know, in media in movies in print and in, in books even. Um, and so that direct um, that direct, uh, that ability to be directly connected with audience is, is powerful. Um, and, and it's, di- it's allowing for a lot of diversity as well. Because anyone who can, you know, has access to a computer or Facebook Live or whatever, they can tell their own stories. And I think that's really important too, because we never wanna lump indigenous folks together, even though there are underlying themes that I've found all native cultures have, we are all very, very diverse. Um, And that's important to recognize and be respectful of that. So I I appreciate that ability that um, social media has brought. Um, But yes, As far as the way that I'm seeing networking happening now, it's both. A lot of it is social networking. um, And even a lot of um, content is very fast, right? So, like, you want to sit down and learn about something in a five-minute video as opposed to Mm -hmm. an hour-long documentary. And so, um, you know, I think I'm not sure if that's such a good thing. Um, because a lot of nuance is lost, and a lot of complexity is lost, and a lot of critical thinking is glossed over. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there, you know, there's, there's this whole, you know, mishmash of the way that we communicate. But I do, I, so I, I see um, Native organizations and communities and, and people working for the health and well-being of our folks um, utilizing all forms of communication. So, you know, the online stuff, as well as getting together um, and, and sitting together and being together outdoor, indoor, as much as possible. Um, but I think it's hard. I mean, I think that, um, hmm, how to say this? Let's see. I think that um, it's really important for, I mean, and one of the things about sovereignty, so let's circle back to that, is this importance of defining ourselves um, and so and speaking for ourselves. So that means that even when we talk about equity, we have to think about not just the content of our words, but the forum that we operate within. So let's say that we go to a convention center in a square room. Um, and look at an agenda that says from 10 to 11, we're gonna talk about equity in the food system. And then we sit there and we have a PowerPoint and we're speaking English and we're sitting in rows, you know, and climate controlled. um, And we we have three minute increments for discussion. That is not, um, that does not lend itself to indigenous, at least not Anishinaabe way of interacting. And for example, our language is so long. (laughs) We have some of the longest words in the world um, that it takes me five minutes to introduce myself. You know what I mean? And also if we're having a discussion with elders, for example, and they go over their three minute time, there's not a native person in that room who is gonna be like, time, you're done.
0: absolutely absolutely not.
1: And so like the way that we interact is just as important as what we say. And so I think that indigenous folks are defining that for themselves. But sometimes it's hard because, you know, we're so used to um, going to the conference and having our discussion from 10 to 11. And then, you know what I mean? And it, there's an agenda and all of those things. And, and, I, and it, it doesn't allow for full conversations. It doesn't allow for critical thinking. It doesn't allow for complexity. It doesn't allow for holding polarity doesn't allow for paradox, all of those things. And those are complex um, things that are, I found are part of any authentic human interaction and certainly very rooted in at least indigenous folks that I know when we have really good conversations, they don't, they're not not structured in such a way.
0: Uh
1: Or like protocol is ignored, you know what I mean? like of course yeah
0: yeah um
1: and so food sovereignty work has to we have a lot of work to do so it's not just talking about food access or nutrition or diet and so i think what happened with um what i've witnessed in just my own limited experience with food sovereignty and certainly i've come i'm you know there's been people doing this work for many many years before me in fact i think my ancestors have been doing this work since forever, food sovereignty, um, is that the conversation was at first defined not by us, right? So it was things like everybody has a high rate of diabetes or we're, over, we're obese or whatever. So it was, deter- it was determined and it was talked about in those very clinical terms, it was talked about in silos, it was talked about as, like as far as nutrition, it was very reductionist. Um, And so I think that one of the beautiful things that I'm seeing happen is that Indigenous folks are pushing back against that and defining food sovereignty and food work for ourselves and not limiting it to just nutrition. So like, you know, nutrition is tied in with, um, with language and language is tied in with taking care of Mother Earth. And taking care of Mother Earth is tied in with um, addressing violence against Native women. So all of those things come together, and that is what resonates within our communities. And I think that is what is going to be effective at helping us to regain our health and our culture, is that we are defining for ourselves what that means, and we are defining for ourselves what those solutions look like in accordance with our um, own teachings and worldview and cosmology. Um, and, and, and and you know in diverse indigenous communities and that plays out differently for all of us.
0: So, so I've got I've got a couple uh, a cu- questions that kind of ping off of that. Um, sure. One of them has to do well. It's 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 maybe a reasking of what I was what I was trying to understand a little a little more clearly which is maybe the, the distinction between the activity that's going on around all this, this uh, regenerative activity within communities on the one hand, and then what communities can learn from each other on the other hand. And so that's, that's part of where I was trying to go with that question about, you know, are, are there forums where people actually come together across a much wider geography um, mm-hmm. to, to share knowledge, to share stories, to share even just, you know, to have a good bitch session, if if that maybe <laughs> was required, you know. But but so is is there much of that activity going on? Because that would be largely invisible to mainstream America. Oh,
1: okay. Hmm. Right. Simply yeah, so because there it, are.
0: indigenous people's world is largely invisible to mainstream America for well,
1: all these. That's reasons. that's intentional. That's, right. That's yeah, intentional exactly. on the part of the of the exactly of the uh, oppressive regime. <laughs>
0: Um, Yes, there are many
1: forums going on. There are fora going on all the time around food stuff all all over the place. So one really nice one is um, in Oneida, Wisconsin. Uh And um, they do that every year. And that tribe has really embraced food sovereignty. Um, They had an amazing director who has recently passed on. um, Yeah, and so they did a lot of really good work there that... um, have an apple orchard and they, they um, grow their traditional white corn um, and they deal with it traditionally and you know and so that that one is really good um, there's a bunch there's things um, even on the level of the United Nations where people come together around um, food. And then there's small ones, even here in Northern Minnesota, there's um, one um, on the reservation that my family is from, which is the Red Lake Reservation, and they've had two so far, and they've been widely attended by people from everywhere. And those ones are largely outdoors, focusing on a lot of traditional food skills um, and preparation techniques, you know, drying, um, and hominy making and um fishing and all of those things. so I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of movement around food sovereignty in Indian country a lot and people are coming together and sharing knowledge um, and supporting one another in efforts to regain regain um, our food sovereignty
0: and if if you were a a uh, newly, newly fascinated member of um, an Indigenous community, but weren't really up to speed on what was happening locally, or maybe maybe your community wasn't as active as some others, uh, would there be places that would be more obvious to go even online, or for instance, to find out like how to, how to jump into that yourself?
1: You know, I think the First Nations Development Institute um, has on their website... Um, some good tools for connecting. Um, And then there's um, an organization called the US Food Sovereignty Alliance. Um, You can look them up and I think they'll have some good um, resources. Um, You can look on the Indigenous Environmental Network page. We definitely need to update that a little bit, but um, give me a call and I'll help you out. Um, Let's
0: let's just remind people how to find the, the IEN page.
1: Yep, so it's uh, www.ienearth.org. And another really great one is one of our sister organizations, um, the Black Mesa Water Coalition, and just Google them. They're doing mm-hmm. amazing work. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really, there's just so much going on. I don't think it would be hard um, for anyone who was interested to find um, the first thread to start pulling, um, to start getting into it. And then, and I don't even know if there's very many communities that aren't doing things around food right now.
0: Yeah, and and you, did you reckon that most of those who would be doing things around food are also connecting more laterally with other communities at this stage? Or do you think a lot of um, that is still happening just within the community?
1: No, I think there's, there's connection across communities, definitely. If you go to, I mean, I think there are certainly, s- certain people right now who are doing a lot of work. You know, like if you talk about seed saving, Rowan White is one of the people and um, everyone knows who she is. Um, You know, there's Valerie Seacrest. Um, There are people who um, are doing, who are well known right now for doing a lot of work. And I think once you start looking at who they are, um, you can be led to other resources.
0: Okay, so then the the next next ping. Um, which is a bit more provocative. Um, And that's when, you know, the first time I ever came out to protect the earth, um, it must have been one of the earliest ones. I had a a good friend, Walter Brissette, from from Wisconsin. He was Mm -hmm. one of the most important people in my life, actually, at the time and a really, really um, powerful mentor for, for the work I was doing. And he'd invited us out there and he's like, look, you need to come here, there's something happening and something you need to know about this. And so when was that? That would have been probably 1990, 1991, somewhere. Yeah, that would have
1: been one of our first ones.
0: Yeah, and um, it, you know, James Bay was going on then, the, the whole standoff around the, the power dams with the, with the Cree Nation and the Inuit. Uh, and and Hydro Quebec and and this sort of thing and um, he 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 kind of threw the mic at me, you know, one evening <laughs> and said like, "Tell these people what's going on with Hydro Quebec." And um, at that point, you know, we hadn't we hadn't succeeded in in shutting it down. Um, and so all I could think about was my frustration and and you know in not being able to to you know to prevail in, in this hideous situation and i started talking about that and partway through the conversation or partway through the, the presentation i realized that everybody in the audience was white
1: hmm.
0: and so Is that brings me
1: the earth conference
0: yeah really? in that partic- <laughs> in that particular group um who come, to, who come together um you know they were young white people with dreadlocks and whatever um, how many
1: of them were there
0: oh 20 or 30, possibly. Okay.
1: okay. It wasn't
0: a massive group, you know,
1: mm-hmm. but they, they
0: kind of filled the space. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, one of those outdoor tents that you, you know, use for speaking yep. and um, something just flipped, you know? And I was like, I can't talk about this because we, you know, all I can think about is how frustrating it is, but I want to talk to you about find about the, the inappropriateness, of cultural appropriation.
1: Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. and particularly for spiritual things and how that's all actually genuinely accessible to each one of you if you just look back into your own heritage you will find the point in time where your people were also connected to the earth and connected to the fire and connected Mm -hmm. to the seasons and that's what's genuinely accessible for you
1: yeah
0: you know and i don't know where that came from but it came out
1: Mm-hmm. but Good. It's, it's, it's something that needs to be said over and over it still needs to be said yeah. 1990 wasn't that long ago
0: exactly but but i'm curious in terms of your work around around you know making people more aware of of local food which is going to have a ripple effect into local you know local uh, maybe non native support circles and and you know this ongoing hunger that non-native people have for an authentic heritage Mm -hmm. right because they they, they're mostly the product of being ripped away from that when their ancestors came in as refugees
1: certainly
0: right um and not knowing where to look to piece that back together so so that's the provocative the provocative end are you finding that there's there are people or organizations coming to you guys saying we want to be part of this conversation or somehow we want to be in because it feels more real than what we're doing?
1: For IEN overall, yes. Yeah. And and
0: for the food um, sovereignty part of it?
1: Um, A little bit, not as much. Um, Oh, that's a tough question. I'm trying to think of any specific examples where that happened. You know, I don't think that our Food Sovereignty program is um, sexy enough yet to draw that kind of, um, you know, sort of following. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, not, not yet, and, and I hope it doesn't, actually. Um, it's, it's a distraction when that happens, yeah, and yeah. It's, it's difficult because then we're, we're to the point where we have to stop and take care of folks' feelings instead of getting to our work.
0: You're Getting into babysitting.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, and I have a lot of compassion and, um, I am mixed race. I don't know much about my Italian heritage. You know, I don't know much, much about my Argentinian, um, father, you know, and, and what his culture is. So I, I definitely recognize that that is something that is, people are hungry for. Um, but kind of like you said, it you don't get to come into a community that's been doing all the heavy lifting for their own cultural um, reconnection, which is survival, is what I call it, right? It's not just like, oh, I'm interested in like, you know, learning about my ancestry. It's, it's survival for us and it's it's being able to thrive is being connected to, you know, what keeps us alive. Um, so yeah, I think it happens a lot. I don't think it's happening too much in, in our food work yet, but it definitely happens a lot with Ayanin it happened a lot at, at Standing Rock. I witnessed that. It happened a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it was, it was really, really hard. And I think there's little, you know, I know there are books and movies being made about Standing Rock and there are conversations that are going to happen forever about it. Um, but it was definitely, there was so much to learn from what went on there. So much to learn. Um, and cultural appropriation was one. And, um, and White folks needing to be center was another one that happened there that was constantly, we were constantly having to push back against even really well-meaning white folks. God, have have you heard that term enough, well-meaning white folks? So we always have to distinguish, right, like (laughs) just to make sure, yes, we don't mean you, no not you, Um, not all white folks, but like, but but I, you know, I think that, um, yeah, Um, and so I think that whenever anyone is interested in learning about Native culture, um, just step back and listen. Get out of center. (laughs) Just step back and listen. That's all you have to do. You don't have to take part. You don't have to help enforce anything. You know, you don't You use your role is just to step back. And I think that white folks role is to address their own racism, their own white supremacy. That's the work that they need to do. And we have our own work to do. Um, And and that's a powerful thing. It's really powerful is when you work from where you're at and where your own strong identity, be that native or non-native, male, female, everything, the whole gender spectrum, all of those things, like those are things we're figuring out. Um, And so food sovereignty, strangely enough, fits in with that, right? So not just nutrition, once again. I don't even know if I'm uh, making sense at this point. I'm really glad this isn't live.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think, I think the, 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 the organic role of the, of the discussion has been really um, illuminating. Yeah, it's as, just
1: really hard for me to talk about food like it's just food. I mean, it, food is incredibly important, and I, don't, I shouldn't even say just food, but it's, it's not alone. I mean, our food is our relatives, you know? I mean, they're living sentient beings. And you know, and soil, and and the whole life cycle that goes on in soil, and that if we don't attend to that, we're in big trouble. And so you know, it's really hard for me to think about food sovereignty in just one way. So the discussion always goes everywhere, but I think that it, that's where it needs to go in order for it to be, in order for the solutions to be big enough to encompass the problem to be big enough to address the problem is that we have to be holistic in the way that we think and act um, because complexity is a beautiful thing and it's the world we're in and we're a part of it. So if we're gonna address the complexity, we have to embrace the complexity.
0: <laughs> I think that's absolutely a beautiful summation and, and probably, <laughs> probably a good point for us to stop.
1: Okay.
0: Because uh, I, I, I really appreciate you giving, giving me the time this afternoon. Sure. Uh, for this conversation and uh, you know I, I don't want to I know you're very busy as well is there is, is there anything further that you feel is important that we might have skipped or gone through too quickly that you'd like to to share with people
1: um I'll probably think about it five minutes after we get off the call so no I think I'm fine for now
0: Okay, well, once again, thanks so much. Um, And um, if if listeners want to find out more about the the program, you can start by going to the website for the Indigenous Environmental Network, which is IENearth.org. Yep, and And then another one is
1: indigenousrising.org.
0: Indigenous Rising, okay. All together. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay, Simone, thanks so much once again, and we'll be in contact. Thanks. Okay, take care. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of Designing Paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.